0: This is Canada Reads American Style, featuring two friends who love Canada Reads and Canadian literature. Welcome our host Rebecca from Michigan and Tara from Ontario. Hi everyone, it's Rebecca. And when Shauna and I started this podcast a few years ago, the plan was that we would interview only Canadian authors but as you may remember, she gave me the go-ahead to interview Andrew Cotter from the UK regarding his book, Olive, Mabel, and Me. Well, today I am beyond thrilled to welcome author Kelsey Ronan to our show. Kelsey grew up in Flint, Michigan, my birthplace, and her work has appeared in Lit Hub, Michigan Quarterly Review, the Kenyon Review, and elsewhere. She lives in Detroit and teaches for Inside Out Literary Arts, And as it has been said, Chevy in the Hole, her first novel, is a love letter to Flint. So I just had to invite her to chat with us. Welcome, Kelsey. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, well, we're just going to jump right into this and ask if you could give us a brief description of your novel for those who haven't read it yet, and your connection to Flint, Michigan.
1: Absolutely. So um, the novel is about two families in Flint um, that come together through this love story and so it follows these two families from the 1936-37 sit-down strike at the GM plants in Flint to the ongoing water crisis Um, and my connection to Flint is of course it's my hometown Um, it's very exciting I deeply appreciate you making an exception um, (laughs) for me for me as a non-Canadian to be on the show one of the one of the like great joys of this book um, in the readings and things that I've done, and so far just around Michigan, but um, I always get someone who comes, who comes up to me and tells me they're a Flint connection, um, and I love I love connecting with all the Flint folks out there. But yeah, I'm uh, Flint born and raised. I lived there till I was 25. Grew up on the west side. Went to uh, Flint Southwestern for high school. Went to University of Michigan Flint for college, um, and yeah and have a long history there in my family.
0: Okay, well so and now I'm going to have to give you a little bit of my Flint story. So my Please. I was born I was born in Flint and lived the first 3 years of my life over by Kersley Park with my grandmother oh. and my parents. And I also used to um, sled over at, at Southwestern. Of course, and oh my gosh, it's like the best hill. And I have ah. to admit that when I first came back after being in California for 30 years, one of the first things I did the first winter was I went back sledding, and I thought, "Here I am, 50 some years old. I'm pretty sure I'm the
1: oldest person sledding
0: at Southwestern." But anyway, all right, well, <laughs> thank you for thank you for that. I appreciate it. Thanks.
1: Yeah, one of my my very first teaching job was over by Kearsley Park. I taught um, creative writing at the after school program at the Shelter of Flint, which is no longer over on the east side.
2: Okay, so Kelsey, I do not have a flint connection. So <laughs> So after having said that, so the title, Chevy in the Hole. Can you actually describe the place Chevy in the Hole for us non-Michiganers?
1: Sure thing. Yeah. Um it's so it's a tricky one. It's cuz it sounds so abstract, but yeah. really it's Um, physically speaking, it is this kind of pit in the Flint River Valley. It was the site of this gigantic, um, Chevrolet factory complex. So it was one of the sites of the sit down strike and it was acres and acres of assembly lines right along the Flint river, kind of running from the, the West side of Flint to downtown Um, So it appears in my novel in in various stages, kind of as a symbol through Mm -hmm. the city's history. So from this industrial site to in the 80s and 90s, um, this sort of abandoned um, place that ultimately was Steamrolled, and in the current moment, um, I should say most of the the book takes place and in, in um, 2014 to 2016, inspired by the water crisis. And these family histories inform the main love affair between the protagonists. And so Chevy and the whole in that era of Flint's history um, was undergoing a phytoremediation initiative. So. I can't remember how many. I should know. But so many. Maybe it was hundreds, maybe it was thousands. Trees were planted in Chevy in the hole to pull up um, just generations of mm-hmm. of toxins from the ground. And and it has since been rehabilitated. And it's now a state park. It is now a green space oh, with like very cool. bike trails and um, just beautiful flowers. And yeah, it's just this kind of... Um, retreat in the middle of the city.
2: Oh, that's a nice ending to that story, actually.
0: And Tara, I have to tell you, when you come and visit, yeah. I really totally thought we have to go over to that area so that you yeah. can, after you, since you've read the book, now you can experience the area. Yeah. Because
2: I think yeah. when I first started reading the book, uh, Kelsey, I kind of took it as like a metaphor, like, you know, because the Chevy and stuff like this. And, and then there was a point in the book, and I'm like, wait a minute. I think this is actually like a geographical place, like you know, it all, all of a sudden it kind of clicked for me, and it was, had brought on a whole other level to it. So that's really cool.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't exist anymore, so to speak. It's now since it's become an official, uh, whether it's a county park or a state park, <laughs> it is um, now Chevy Commons, oh. which is really, which is really strange. I grew up with it as Chevy in the Hole, and I still yeah. very much think of it as Chevy in the Hole, but.
2: Okay, so now as a bird lover, I really enjoyed picking up these little images of birds throughout the book. So there was a, in the first chapter, so I'm not spoiling anything here. um, During his overdose, Gus has a vision which involves birds. And then when we first meet Monet, she raises chickens and even Beatrice draws birds. Can you please discuss your use of bird imagery?
1: sure so the book covers a lot of of history right it covers a lot of the history of the city it covers a lot of the history of these two families and so um i was interested in the devices the images that would kind of connect all those pieces and so of course it's people but as as we're making these like leaps um back in time Throughout the book, so you have the forward-moving narrative of these two characters falling in love, and then um, these family history chapters that jump around between the 30s and the 60s. Um, music is is something too that recurs. Faith. Um, this the book opens as you said with an overdose where Gus has this vision of birds, and so the 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 novel sort of begins with this question of was that death? And was, if so, was that heaven? And what does that mean? So these birds recur all throughout. Um, I wish I had something really profound to say about that. I also am a bird lover. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I have only recently, I had pet birds for a long time. I had finches. I had a love bird. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've only recently become a not bird, mother <laughs> i only have cats now but um and i live in detroit where there's nothing more exciting to me than like spotting a pheasant um we have ringneck pheasants here and they're so cool wow. um but no i guess i was attracted to birds as um birds as a device because there's of course it's, it's handy because there's so many birds in scripture um, there's so many birds in, in songs. There's so many birds in, in metaphor. Um, but also it's just one of those things that once you, if you, if you are a bird person, birds are everywhere. So yeah. once you start noticing them, you kind of can't stop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and they, you you can live your whole life with birds just sort of as wallpaper in the world around you and you don't notice them at all. But then if you're, if you're um, looking for them, um, they carry a different, a different significance. Yeah.
0: Okay. So my question, first, I want to mention that the the love story, the the, um, love love story basically is between August and Monet and August is white and Monet is African-American. And there is an intersection between their family history and without, because I don't want to give anything away to the reader because I really want them to read this book and be amazed at the storytelling. But was that a conscious decision um, from the beginning or did it happen organically to have those two histories sort of connect?
1: That's such a great question. And I don't really remember. I, I mean, I worked on this book for several years. It went through many different shapes. Um, it started out as a short story collection. It, it started out as a, something that was much more kind of episodic I guess Mm -hmm. um and I thought about each of these generations of the family as a little more detached from each other so when I um rethought of the book as a novel and plunged into it um and thought of it as a a love story a contemporary moment in Flint that wasn't necessarily a family history but informed by these family histories different things emerged and honestly I don't remember at what point um I decided that those characters should have that link um I will say some of it feels this sounds very grandiose but I'll say it anyway but it feels a a little bit um part of my kind of political agenda so so to speak behind the behind the book like I um I'm not a a politician or a sociologist and I don't know anything um I don't know anything I should just stop the sentence there but I especially don't know about like I've been asked a couple times in interviews like how what's your hope for Flint or how do we fix Flint just like gosh like I'm a fiction writer I just make stuff up I can't answer this question for you Hmm. um but I, I am really interested as someone from the city um, who still, like, I live an hour away. I still have lots of family and friends in Flint. I'm there all the time. Um, I'm very interested in this sort of bigger narrative we have that Flint, uh, Flint being this ghost town. I uh, remember I was actually living a little bit in St. Louis when the, the water crisis first broke, and there was... A line in the New York Times, they're talking to these different um, business owners downtown. um, And there was a line of like, the only people still in Flint are the people that are, who have no other options. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't want to dismiss that at all as a reality for people. But it was disorienting to me because from afar, I didn't know anybody who was moving. And so I I was very interested when I started getting really deep into the writing of this novel of who stays. the The popular sort of story of Flint is one of loss, of this gigantic population loss, of deindustrialization, disinvestment. But who are the people who stay? And what are their experiences? What are the very the very different um, experiences they have. So one thing that again was important to me um, in thinking about race and how it's um, informed so much of what's happened in Flint of thinking about how identity can change so much of how a person experiences the same event as, as someone else. So some of the, the, things that take place in the book in the 60s, having black and white families, um, I hope underscores some of that. But yeah, I was interested in, in them both in their very, very different um, family backgrounds, some some differences in their socioeconomic backgrounds of what binds them in many ways is their, their family stayed and they've stayed or Gus has kind of keeps cycling back and can't seem to leave. (laughs) Um, I think it's that, that, that question for me of, yes, a lot of people have left Flint, but who are, who are the people who've stayed there and what is it that, that really anchors them?
0: You know, I was born and raised just South of the Flint area, but um, I mean, I was raised in the South, uh, went to Atherton high school, um, school district, but But, um, that was the thing that I loved about it because when I came, I was, then I was in California for 30 years, came back to take care of my parents. And when I came back, I did, I still went down to Flint. Like I hit the restaurants and everything and I big public library fan, So I was always in that area. And I agree with you because I used to go to the North end to the Balkan bakery every week to get bread still, which is what my grandmother did when I was a kid and my mom, when she was a kid. And so that civic park area, You know, you would drive through it and you could clearly see the houses that were just just devastated. And then you would still see people living there as well. And I was just always fascinated by this city that still just keeps barely hanging on. And then when the water crisis hit, i just come back right before that. And that was really devastating. But today I was driving my five-year-old little uh, great-niece, And we were going over to Luigi's on Davison Road. So we were on the east side. That's where she wanted to go. She's five years old. That's where she wanted to go eat. But we were driving along and she said, oh, like that. And I said, what? She said, the houses are broken. And I said, yeah, I said, some of them are broken. And I thought, man, some of them are still hanging in there, but a lot of them are broken. So, But that's what I loved about the book. Because that's why it's really a love letter to Flint because people have stayed, many people have stayed and they are eking out their lives. They continue to do so.
1: Absolutely, I mean, I know so many people who wouldn't leave Flint for the world. I know so many people who have were either born there and have circled back or have no connection to Flint, but you know, have moved there from elsewhere and people who are really, um, really committed to the city and, and improving it and building and just invested in making it so much better. I think that's one of the stories of the water crisis that I wish was lifted up more um, is the activists, the, the people who have really um, put themselves out on the line for, for Flint and getting its story told and um, bettering their communities.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now I have another question because um, we have this in my own family, some skeletons and everything that we discovered well after people were gone. But my question is, because the book also talks about this, um, that family histories are often hidden from subsequent generations. And in Chevy and the Hole, one character learns the truth about the family and another does it. And I wondered if you could just talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I... I'm also really interested in ideas of of intergenerational trauma. It sounds kind of kind of buzzwordy and I maybe I'm like trying to sound fancier when what I really mean is just like the things we inherit from our families. Um be that, you know, our our physical features, be that parts of our personality, be that things that we've observed um and consciously or subconsciously taken on our, ourselves are things that feel inexplicable or inescapable. I think mean, things like addiction, um, being something that runs through families, mental health. Um, yeah, all those things. I, I will say my, my family is also, a family that has <laughs> some skeletons. Um, and I, I think everybody is, I think I can say what I don't know. Um, but I've, I'm like really fascinated with my own family history, but part of it um, being, you know, Flint, a lot of parts of the family um, leaving for elsewhere throughout my life, generations passing away, I was, I was, um, I had a really strong relationship with my grandfather who loved Flint, was a great storyteller. He'd grown up, um, he'd moved to Flint as a child in the thirties. His dad was a pots and pan salesman, like the character in the book. So they were never auto workers, but they were like kind of existed, um, in that kind of generous motors boom of like, ah, oh, all these people are moving here. We got to get them their pots and pans. <laughs> so yeah. And he was, he was one of nine and anyway, so he would, he would take me around the city and show me, um, you know, where things used to be his neighborhood, where he'd, he'd grown up that had gotten knocked out for the expressway and his old paper route and stores that used to be there. And the tree where he first kissed my grandmother and all these very Aww. like that's cool (laughs) rosy lovely things but he would talk a lot about people that I didn't know um, including of course his parents who had both passed well before I was born Um, and he was one of nine and all um, of his siblings had were scattered around the country Um, I think he was the only one still in Flint when I was a kid so I knew all these stories about people that I didn't know. And one of the stories that I really was fascinated by um, was the story of his oldest sister. I think it was at I can't, a funeral, their mother's funeral, maybe. After the funeral, she was like, I have to tell you all, like, we don't have the same father. <laughs> but that was it. Like, yeah I, I don't have any more of the story like who who was that guy <laughs> like what the, who is who's the other secret dad and like what happened was it a a pregnancy out of wedlock did he was it a shameful divorce did he pass away very suddenly um and then a, uh I was widowed myself at twenty four so just thinking about how you know, my my great grandmother who I'll I'll never meet and I'll never have any more of that story. Well who was this lost guy? Um, and how did that kind of hang over my family history? It just fascinates me.
0: Wow. That is really interesting.
1: Yeah. Book number two, California. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> questions I can't answer. <laughs> yeah.
2: Okay, before I ask my next question, I just want to tell you, Kelsey, I really loved uh, the characters of Gus and Monet. They're beautiful characters, and Monet is a force, so she was amazing. But uh, towards the end, there's a, Gus visits his old apartment in Detroit, Mm -hmm. and an internet search leads him to find the Greek word for abode. What or who is home for Gus?
1: Oh, I think it's her. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: I think he very genuinely is deeply obsessively in love with her. Um, But also I think he's in that place in his uh, recovery journey where he's looking for something. He's looking for something to really devote himself to like, that that yearning, both to to in the letting go of an old life to to create something new, um, and that kind of zealousness of like this is who I am now, and this is this is what my day looks like, and this is what is important to me, and how um, very intentional that that has to be in recovery. So for him, I think she is someone who's deeply committed to Flint, deeply committed to issues um around food security and nutrition and city politics and she's every she's aspirational to me she's she's the smart person i wish that i was Um, um and i and i think for him it's it's not really so much flint i think flint's kind of where he met her flint happened to be his literal home but that she fills that place um more metaphorically or abstractly for him.
0: Well, and I have to say one of the things I loved it and loved it immediately from the very beginning, it was just because I was born and raised here and, and every reference, and it's hilarious because you mentioned, you know, Michigan School for the Deaf and and the um, Miller Road area. And I used to drive that way. I worked on Corona Road and I used to drive kind of back ways around that, you know, to that area. So every little reference that made this book so personal for me, that's what I especially loved. And even if I hadn't, and I just want to make this clear to all of our listeners, even if you didn't grow up in Flint or know it very well, you're still going to love this story because I agree with you. I loved the different generations. I loved Goldie. She was probably one of my mm-hmm. favorite characters and all those pieces of Flint history are in there. But if you didn't know them, it, it wouldn't really matter, but it's, I just loved everything about this book. So you did such a super job.
1: Thank you. That's so important to me. Thank you.
0: So our last question is, um because when I recognize or realized what your background is right now, um, I wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit about your work with inside out literary arts because it sounds really fascinating.
1: It is fascinating. I am extremely fortunate in the um, <laughs> in the in the job jobs plural. I'm a true millennial with a million side hustles, but um, <laughs> yeah. So Inside Out Literary Arts is a Detroit nonprofit that places uh, writers into uh, largely Detroit public schools, but also schools throughout the metro area. And so um, each writer has a year-long residency at that school where they lead creative writing programming, and each school produces an anthology of of student poetry at the end of the school year. So for the last three years, I have been the writer in residence of an elementary school here, um, Gardner Elementary School, go gladiators. <laughs> <laughs> um, I work with the, this year was third and fourth. I have uh, the last couple of years were second through fourth. But so yeah, I spend half of my week in each of the third and fourth grade classrooms and i just i get to do all the best parts of teaching but i don't have to give grades or call parents or do any of the (laughs) the the grind of that teachers deserve so much um credit and and teachers are heroic in so many ways that i think we've we've been recognizing um more and more over the last couple of years. So I don't have to do any of that stuff. I just get to go in and be Miss Kelsey and like give them a really cool poem to read or a really cool piece of music to listen to or um, pull up some amazing pieces of art for them to look at and we respond to it and we write and we talk about how we feel and they are the most like lovely, hilarious thoughtful um people on earth and it's been a really um it's been an interesting journey the last i had one one school year with them and then i of course as the pandemic hit we've been pivoting back and forth from from virtual to um back in the school so we've we've definitely Grown together and experienced, <laughs> yeah. experienced the the changing world together, um, in some really unforeseen ways. But yeah, it's a amazing organization.
0: Wow, that is that just sounds really incredible. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. So, do you have anything on the horizon? I know you just published this book, but do you have anything on the horizon for the future?
1: I do. I keep referring to this as my first book in the hopes that I'm, like, manifesting more books, you know? <laughs> um, so I have a couple things I've been working on. I like. I primarily think of myself as a, a fiction writer, and I do have these kind of scraps for what may be another novel set in Flint down the line. Um, I'm really fascinated with the Mall. if that has any resonance for oh,
0: you. Oh, my gosh. Yes, it does. <laughs> I remember back when it used to be something and, and when I came yeah. home and saw that whole area just devastated, I was like, Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, but I've also I I think I don't I sh- I don't know. Um, but my next project maybe I've been working kinda it's been on my back burner, um, this nonfiction project as I as I said, I was um widowed really young and left Flint. Um just a couple of years before the water crisis hit. So I've been working on this piece about about young grief and about the decision to leave Flint and then the decision to come back and the, the way the water crisis has impacted my family. So I don't know. I've had a long break from it because I've been really, really lucky with Work, of course, but, all, but also with all the promotional stuff for the, for the book. I've, I've had so many wonderful opportunities to just talk about Chevy in the hole with people. But yeah, I'm hoping this summer to hunker down and, and get back into my writing practice. And I think that will be my next full draft.
0: Well, we just want to say thank you so much. We really enjoyed your book. And I'm going to give a shout out to Colleen, who read it along with us as well. I know that she really enjoyed it. And we just want to encourage everyone to, especially if you're in Canada, you're probably going to have to, you know, you might have to purchase it, which is a good thing, but you can also check with your public library to see if they might purchase it, especially if you're in Ontario. I would think we're close enough. Michigan, Ontario, we we share a border, so. But um, Kelsey, thank you so much for joining us today. We really honestly appreciate you taking uh, the time out to, to chat with us. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Kelsey.
2: Thank you for joining us on our bookish journey. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing Canada Reads American Style wherever you listen. You can connect with the podcast and Rebecca on Instagram at Canada Reads American Style and with Tara at On a Branch Reads. Until next time, keep reading.